Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the authors of a new book which reveals the disconnect between what top Republican leaders say in private and what they espouse in public, particularly when it comes to Donald Trump, who McConnell loathes, McCarthy is fed up with and Senator Graham fawns over. Joining us are Jonathan Martin and Alexander Burns, both national political correspondents for the New York Times and political analysts for CNN, as well as the co-authors of the new book, Just Out, This Will Not Pass, Trump, Biden and the Battle for America's Future, which depicts a fired-up Republican Party in a cult-like thrall of Donald Trump, while portraying a Democratic Party led by Joe Biden as inept and out of touch. We will discuss how the Democrats are at least sane although riven by petty quarrels and weighed down by identity politics, with their elderly leaders unable to grasp the brutal political agenda of the Republicans. As for Trump's GOP, they are hell-bent on the destruction of American democracy, or else too craven to stand up to Trump, who they will follow in lockstep to the presidency in 2024, as he tramples on our democratic norms and desecrates our values and virtues. Then we will speak with John Nichols, the Nation magazine's Washington correspondent, whose books include People Get Ready, The Fight Against a Jobless Economy and a Citizen-Less Democracy, Horseman of the Trump-Opolypse, A Field Guide to the Most Dangerous People in America, and most recently, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics. We will discuss his latest articles at The Nation. The Supreme Court just streamlined the process for bribing senators, and Summer Lee is exactly what a Democrat should be. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. Joining us now is Jonathan Martin and Alexander Burns, both national political correspondents for The New York Times and political analysts for CNN, as well as the co-authors of the new book just out, This Will Not Pass, Trump, Biden and the Battle for America's Future. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jonathan Martin and Alexander Burns. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Well, thanks for joining us. And let me begin with you, uh, Jonathan. It seems in many ways that what your book has brought to us is what's often re- described to us the first draft of history. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it would seem, though, that that period around January the 6th and shortly thereafter, historians will be looking at that, I think, for decades, if not centuries to come, because it was a real turning point in American history. The possibility of literally getting rid of Donald Trump, who's, who is in the process of making a comeback. Do you, in retrospect, find it? that momentous? We couldn't agree more. And the reason that we want to do a larger, more expansive and comprehensive book on this period of political crisis in America is that we thought the moment demanded it, that this was not just one more campaign, that this was a true test of American democracy and can the system hold. 
you know, we've gotten so used to a peaceful transfer of power in this country between presidents of either the same party or different parties. We've took it for granted. And I think what happened in the aftermath of the election of 2020, and especially on January 6th, was it opened the eyes of a lot of people that we can't take it for granted anymore, that our institutions are not necessarily as strong as we thought that they were. And yes, it can happen here, potentially, that uh, the, the sort of traditional um, uh, rules, the boundaries, the norms are, are not that strong. And I think we chronicle in the book at great length, especially with Republicans, just how much they're willing to bow to Donald Trump and let him run rampant and really challenge and potentially undermine American democracy. And the story, as you can tell from the title, this will not pass. The story goes on. And this is not history. This is still an active challenge that is is really uh, going to sort of test the American system here once again in the next few years. And as your book points out, Alexander, that on uh, January the 6th, McConnell, the Senate minority leader, called his staff together and described what Trump has done as being despicable and also went on to say that he would crush Trump's minions in the 2022 elections and famously said the Democrats are going to take care of the son of a bitch for us. What happened, of course, was that McCarthy, again, shortly thereafter, I think around the 10th or the 11th of January, famously in a call to his caucus, talked about all kinds of ways of getting rid of him, but basically basically, I've had had enough with this guy, and talked about the 25th Amendment, etc. And then, of course, McCarthy denied this, and then Jonathan appeared on MSNBC the next day with the tapes, making it clear that McCarthy is a liar. But he hasn't seemed to have paid a price. Is that the problem with this new era of politics, that no matter how outrageous the behavior is, the politician doesn't seem to pay a price? Well, I think it's certainly a a major cultural shift in the U.S. over the last quarter century or so, where uh, you've gone from seeing politicians pay a severe price for uh, being exposed as liars to paying a limited and then minimal and then seemingly no price. Um, I'm not sure, uh, Ian, that I would say that uh, there is literally no price to be paid, though, uh, including for Kevin McCarthy. Look, when we Uh, put out that audio, I think there was this immediate reaction in Washington and in uh, the sort of political world. Oh, my goodness, how can he possibly uh, survive after he's, you know, had the mask ripped off? He's been exposed uh, like this. And, you know, it's it's a cycle that the country went through a whole number of times with Trump uh, over the course of his uh, 2016 campaign and presidency. Every time he was exposed as a liar or you know, a, a business cheat or a sexual predator, there'd be, well, he must be finished now. Uh, and when it didn't happen immediately, there was the sense that, well, just nothing sticks to him. Stuff does stick to people over time, which is why Donald Trump, uh, as the president, was the first uh, since Herbert Hoover to preside over and came into office with control of uh, the White House, the Senate, uh, and the House of Representatives. And by the time he left office, his party had lost all of them. There is a price to be paid uh, cumulatively. We just don't quite know what it might be uh, for McCarthy just yet. Uh, is he doomed? No. Uh, is he likely to be the next Speaker of the House? I think we could debate how likely, but probably likelier uh, than not. But how are you going to function as Speaker of the House, even if you get there 
when everybody around you and anyone you might deal with in any situation knows that they can't really uh, trust your word. That's actually a pretty difficult position to be in uh, once you have actual power. And Jonathan, I recall earlier on mm -hmm. where McCarthy was in a meeting with then House Majority Leader Paul Ryan, and they were discussing Trump and and this congressman out here in Southern California, no longer, of course, but Dana Rohrabacher. And, mm -hmm. and, and uh, McCarthy said off the cuff, I swear to God that Rohrabacher and Trump are on Putin's payroll, at right. which point... Paul Ryan said, well, let's not talk about that. So yeah. that indicates to me that McCarthy gets it. So what's going on with these people like McCarthy and McConnell and Lindsey Graham? Yeah, where yeah. They're, patriots, they're patriots in private, but traitors in public. Well, we really wanted to capture that gap between the private conversations and the private deliberations of America's political leadership, Democrat and Republican, uh, and how candid they are, especially in the case of Republicans, about Donald Trump, and just how different that is uh, with their views in public. Look, Republican leaders, by and large, have little regard for Donald Trump. They, they view him as uh, sort of cringeworthy embarrassment at best. But in public, they have to kiss his ring because their voters uh, you know, by and large, like Donald Trump. And that creates uh, the sort of example of what you're citing, which is Kevin McCarthy, as we reveal on those, on those audio tapes, talking about Donald Trump as a threat to American democracy, who we, we have to find a way to get out of office before January 20th. This is in the, the days after January 6th. And I think it's, um, it's revealing. And as to your question, why? I don't think it's more complicated than, than politics and retaining political power or gaining political power. I think that's the price uh, for figures like Kevin McCarthy, that if they want to be Speaker of the House, as he does next year, you have to keep Donald Trump uh, as, you know, as an ally. That, that's just what their party has become today. And again, I'm speaking with Jonathan Martin and Alexander Burns, both national political correspondents for The New York Times and political analysts for CNN, as well as the co-authors of the new book, Just Out, This Will Not Pass, Trump, Biden, and the Battle for America's Future. And Alexander, of course, the, the conventional wisdom is that McCarthy and, and all of those who pay fealty to Trump and to his base are terrified of being primaried. So... What are the actual numbers here? Are we becoming the country of Marjorie Taylor Greene, or are, is this still just the most vocal minority, maybe up to one-third of the country, but not a critical mass? Well, I think we're certainly not becoming the country of Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, she is, I think, an extreme uh, force even within the Republican Party. As we saw uh, uh, just a couple days ago in the uh, primaries in North Carolina and Pennsylvania, there actually is such a thing. Uh, as being too extreme and too wacky uh, for a Republican primary voters. Madison Cawthorn lost his uh, primary for re-election after the local, not the national political establishment, after the local Republican uh, political establishment brought down uh, the hammer on him. Uh, it's it's a, it, To me, it's a super important moment in Republican politics because it shows that it actually is possible uh, to, to rein uh, these folks in, but it does take some doing. Uh, and at the national level, Republican leaders have mostly not uh, been willing to do it. But look, I think that you see again and again when the Republican Party veers 
way too far to the right. They actually do pay an electoral price for it, just not as as drastic a price they would pay for it if we didn't have uh, our system structured in a way uh, because of the a composition of the Senate and to some extent the Electoral College uh, that gives disproportionate weight uh, to rural uh, conservative voters. Um, but even with uh, that sort of thumb on the scale, uh, you know, you've never had a a, a Trumpist majority uh, in the Congress. You have had a Republican majority with a very, very muscular uh, Trumpist faction. And I think one of the big questions for the uh, 2022 midterms and, of course, for the next presidential race is uh, which side of that balance within the Republican Party really gains ascendancy? Uh, do you end up with a situation where you, know, you have a whole lot of people uh, you, know, you see this in a number of primaries, including the one I mentioned in Pennsylvania, where you have essentially conventional Republicans are running uh, uh, whilst sort of paying lip service to Donald Trump. Uh, and then once they're in the once they're in office, they essentially function like Mitch McConnell. Uh, or do you have more and more people uh, who genuinely are extreme or who are more uh, like Kevin McCarthy, where like whatever their beliefs may be, or maybe they don't even particularly have uh, strong beliefs, they're willing to uh, sort of carry water for anyone, no matter how extreme, as long as it gets them uh, where they want to go. But there's an argument on the Democratic side, apparently, that uh, should you make election suppression and the vote rigging that's going on, and after all, CPAC is meeting in Hungary, where the role model of uh, autocratic election suppression is uh, Orban, the prime minister. So a lot of even Judge Ludic recently wrote a, a long piece, a very conservative judge, suggesting that this was the biggest threat to American democracy and that the playing field was indeed being rigged in a way that could create a one-party state. So the argument amongst Democrats appears to be that, well, you know, you've got to talk about the economy and how you're going to deal with inflation. You can't talk about something abstract like saving democracy. So that's one argument on the Democratic side. On the Republican side, is there any sort of argument about whether or not you should take on a difficult task of educating your voters about who Donald Trump is and what a disaster he is for American democracy? If they say it all in private, what's yeah. it going to take for them to say it in public? Well, <laughs> you, are, you are echoing what the anti-Trump forces, uh, however small they are, in the Republican Party believe, which is that no, that in the days after the sex, that that was the moment for Republicans to lead, not follow, and sort of steer their voters away from Donald Trump and sort of make clear why what he did was a, um, you know, sort of grievous and and really profound uh, attack on American democracy and could not be tolerated, and the party had to effectively excommunicate him. There was just not the will to do it. You know, I. Um, uh, <laughs> politics uh, attracts people who have a lot of ambition, uh, and sometimes it attracts people who have more ambition than courage. And um, you know, there's a reason, as the, as the saying goes, why the, the book profiles in courage uh, is a, as small as it is. Uh, it, it's just it's 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 fairly uh, uncommon to sort of see that kind of daring uh, in American politics, especially when lawmakers go home or they hear from folks back home. And in their own party, it's a pretty loud chorus of support for, for Donald Trump. So is there an appetite to do that among some folks, some folks in the party? Yes. How big is that uh, constituency? Not very. So is that then the result of the professional politician? In other words, it's become a career 
as opposed to a stint of public service? That's certainly a, a big part of the a sort of cultural uh, shift here. I think that happened in the U.S. Uh, quite a while ago. But, uh, you know, the notion that there's nothing worse uh, that could happen to you than losing renomination in a primary campaign, uh, I do think sort of that mentality is is so much more pervasive today uh, than it was uh, even 10 years ago. And, you know, the, the uh I don't think we've seen a stress test uh, of people, you know, politicians' characters and of our political culture, uh, you know, quite uh, like uh, uh, we're seeing right now. But I do think that, you know, there there used to be a little bit more of a culture in our politics of of confidence uh, and self-assurance and, uh, you know, uh, on the part of politicians who felt like, listen, like I am who I am and I'm going to cast the votes I'm going to cast. And if you want to come at me, then uh, come at me. But the culture now of of extreme fear on every vote particularly on the Republican side, but increasingly on the Democratic side, too. I think it's toxic to actually getting anything done uh, and setting the kind of boundaries on uh, these sort of dangerous cultural forces that we obviously need. And Jonathan, it does seem extraordinary, though, that the major party like the Republican Party could actually not have any, at least not advertising any programs, plans. They don't even have a platform. They seem to be engaged in trolling, owning the libs and culture wars. So (laughs) is there anything to indicate that the problem is with the electorate itself, that it doesn't require a political party to have a vision? Yeah, I mean, you've touched on something that's very important, and that is what animates a lot of, of sort of political activists is opposition and really heated opposition to the other uh, party, uh, it's sort of less promoting their own agenda or advancing their own agenda than it is stopping what they perceive as the sort of threat of the opposition. I think the political scientists call it negative uh, negative partisanship, and I, I think that's that that's certainly a huge factor. And when your own party does not offer a sort of detailed uh, vision or sort of policy plan, um, voters don't really notice, or you know care if they if they do um because what what sort of drives them is how much are you confronting the opposition and uh that has become such a powerful force in today's politics so alexander your book basically portrays the gop in the thrall of trump but also the democrats with a leader who's somewhat out of touch thinking that he might be an FDR, but he doesn't have FDR's mandate. So his ambitions are outstripping the political reality. And we've seen uh, his major programs go down largely through what could be described as sabotage from his own side with Senators Manchin and Cinema. And the book makes it clear, I think, that the party leadership on the Democratic side is, is out of touch with maybe, certainly with its younger members on the more progressive side, if not its own electorate. So We've talked a little about the dysfunction of the Republicans, so let's turn the tables on the Democrats. So is that an accurate description? I think it is. I think, you know, out of touch with many of their own constituencies, uh, sort of desperate to show that they are in touch and flailing as they go about it. I think that so much of uh, Joe Biden's difficulty in building any kind of coherent uh, Democratic governing coalition can stem from the the fact that he is separated 
uh, obviously by uh, literal age, but also I think even more dramatically by cultural age uh, from so many of the lawmakers in his party, the voters who uh, put him in office. And so he winds up kind of speaking uh, progressive as a second language and not doing it uh, particularly well. Um, you know, you said that it's a, it's a party a party leadership that's out of touch. I think it's also a party leadership that in so many ways is uh, out of energy uh, and out of political capital that you have for the most part, you know, between Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi uh, and Chuck Schumer, uh, a set of people who've been leading the Democratic Party for uh, at least a decade, if not in uh, Speaker Pelosi's case, uh, two decades uh, as leader of her party uh, in the lower chamber. Uh, and that's a whole lot of time. Uh, to be putting your own credibility uh, and your own sort of political uh, vigor and vision uh, on the line. And what we see over and over again uh, in our narrative, and I think this will uh, certainly be familiar uh, to you and your listeners from just uh, observing the first year of the uh, Biden administration, in so many instances where the moment seemed to cry out for somebody to sort of state a clear agenda and set a, a, a defined direction for democratic politics, People like Biden and Pelosi are instead sort of looking at the, uh, the folks in the room with them and trying to measure sort of who's the furthest to the left, uh, who is the closest to the uh, middle, and like, where should I be in order to get uh, both of them on board, as opposed to doing anything affirmative. And to me, that's the big thing that's missing uh, in democratic politics these days. You don't have anybody at the absolute top tier, not the president, the vice president, uh, either of the congressional, uh, uh, you know, leaders in the congressional chambers, uh, who represents a real sort of uh, source of intellectual vitality uh, in the party, and they paid a real price for it. And we're continuing the conversation with Jonathan Martin and Alexander Burns, both national political correspondents for the New York Times and political analysts for CNN, as well as the co-authors of the new book just out, "This Will Not Pass: Trump, Biden, and the Battle for America's Future." And it doesn't seem that, I mean. Biden, of course, cannot say that he's not going to run again. That's what Teddy Roosevelt did and made himself a lame duck. But on the other hand, it does seem a little unlikely that he'll have the energy to do another term, if he, even if he's elected, and, that, and that's becoming less and less likely. But his successor in the vice president, your book makes it clear that there's a lot of problems with her, to say the least. Yeah, well, look, I think that uh, Vice President Harris was picked for pretty uh, – obvious political purposes. It was a short-term decision. You can't totally fault Biden for that. He was running with one imperative in the summer of 2020, and that is eject Donald Trump from the White House, period. And I think he, he believed that she was the best candidate to help him in that cause. But of course, when you make that kind of decision, uh, less thought through are the implications for both governing, uh, if you do become president, and then, of course, the larger matter of succession whether it's in 2024 or 2028. And I think that uh, creates a sort of challenge today. It was not clear what her role was going to be as vice president, and it was not clear if she would be ready to serve herself as president pretty soon after. Um, and I think that gets to the heart of, of the sort of challenge with the vice president today. And she's not established her own identity. Vice presidents often can't. They're tied to the president they serve. President Biden is not popular at this point. Neither is she. So uh, <laughs> that, that sort of captures why Democrats are so damn anxious uh, right now about 22 and 24. And Alexander, apparently Mark Penn, who ran Hillary's campaign, had been meeting with uh, Joe Manchin. And there's talk of him running as an independent in 2024. That would split the Democratic vote and give Trump a shoe in. But 
at this oh point, it does seem like, you know, it's hard to believe, but Trump is making a comeback. And I can't see, uh, you know, with inflation and, and uh, with this war in Ukraine that's in many ways driving inflation, that the Democrats in November will do anything but suffer a bloodbath and then lay the groundwork for Trump coming back. It's almost incomprehensible that somebody that a failed and disgraced president could make such a comeback. So tell me I'm not being pessimistic. <laughs> I mean, look, I think that that's definitely one track that uh, uh, the next couple of years uh, could take. I do think that the, you know, you said the midterms uh, seem like they're on track to be nothing but a, but, but a bloodbath. I think the worse the outcome in the midterms is for the Democratic Party, the faster you will start to hear uh, and see uh, folks in the party who are not in the White House, you know, maybe governors, uh, senators, members of the cabinet, uh, start to go a little bit more public with their concerns about uh, Biden and perhaps Biden-Harris leading them uh, into the next election. Normally, it would be unthinkable, and it's still pretty hard to imagine, uh, Democrats sort of openly uh, nudging their president to the door, uh, to the exits uh, in that way. It's the party that just in our times, it hates internal conflict. It's deeply uncomfortable challenging its own hierarchy, at least relative uh, to the Republican Party. But because of the menace of Trump out there, I do think it creates uh, some space for a more a candid conversation in democratic politics about uh, Biden's shortcomings. Look, if we, w if we wake up uh, the day after uh, the first Tuesday in November uh, and Democrats have lost you know, 20 House seats, but they've held on to the Senate because Republicans nominated a bunch of very, very flawed candidates out there, uh, then I think we're looking at a different scenario. And then I think you you do look at Biden, uh, you know, potentially deciding that he wants to keep running again. Everything that Jonathan and I heard in the reporting of the book and have heard more recently uh, is that, you know, if, if Joe Biden isn't running again, somebody forgot to tell uh, Joe Biden. Uh, but you know, I think you do need to show some resiliency in the midterm elections in order for that to be uh, a really realistic possibility. So just in the, in the last few minutes, uh, let me start with Jonathan. Obviously, in voting Biden in, a lot of voters thought that he's a veteran of the Senate. He's always been very bipartisan. He'd get things done. And the sad mm -hmm. thing is that he wasn't able to even persuade two of his own caucus members, Senators Manchin and Sinema, to, to get on board. The book tells the story of, of a meeting with the Senators Collins, Portman, and Thune trying to get Joe Manchin to become a Republican. Right. But where did they blow it with him, though? I mean, was it, in other, or let me put it another way. Was it possible that Biden, with his friendship with Manchin, could have got him to get on board, build back better, and not basically humiliate him the way that he has? Yes, is the short answer. Look, I think in the summer of 21, Manchin puts down on paper what he is willing to support in the Build Back Better legislation. It was not at that point what most congressional Democrats aspired to, that they wanted to go bigger, uh, sort of more expansive uh, policy proposals, a sort of pricier um, uh, approach. But um, Manchin was clearly for something. And I think that in hindsight, is 2020, of course, but it suggests that if Chuck Schumer and Joe Biden at that point had taken yes for an answer from Joe Manchin and moved something from the Senate um, uh, along the lines that Manchin said he was for, you know, soon after the infrastructure vote, so this would have been late summer, early fall of 21, 
you know, the House may have sort of pushed back. Pelosi may have pushed for more. But if that's all the Senate would have produced, obviously the House would have eventually voted for something along those lines. And I think you would not have gotten to the point that we did in December where Manchin finally pulls the plug uh, because of, at that point, inflation. And then, of course, he would cite Ukraine. Um, but he's basically just sort of looking for a reason not to be for uh, the legislation at that point. And I think that's the fateful moment is that summer of 21 where Manchin comes out for, for something more narrow and the White House and the Democrats in Congress um, believe they can push him for more. And Alexander, let's just touch on the other Senator Cinema. What troubles me most about her is that she won't talk to the press, and that, is, to me, is a huge red flag. She's obviously a quirky person. What do you think motivates her? Why is she doing what she's doing? <laughs> it's it's such a... a, a constant uh, topic of conversation in democratic politics uh, and in the press is just like, what makes her tick? And it's something that we have in the book is, you know, Biden basically telling his advisors, like, look, I don't always agree with Joe Manchin, but I get a Joe Manchin. I don't uh, get her. I don't get what makes her uh, tick. Um, look, I think you know, when you talk to people who know her really well, uh, it's a couple things. One is that she uh, is quite ideologically flexible, to say the least, that she's incredibly ambitious and that she sees herself uh, as having done something extraordinary in her climb uh, up through Arizona politics. And she has uh, to, to give credit where due uh, to win that seat uh, as a Democrat, uh, as, as an LGBT Democrat uh, in Arizona. Um, that's not a small accomplishment. And I think that she uh, has been emboldened with every victory uh, to sort of shrug off the pressure uh, from her peers and the criticism. Uh, uh, from her own side. And then when you talk to people who know her really well, they say there's just a, a dimension there of like incredible uh, intellectual arrogance and just a sense that uh, she's actually the smartest person in the room uh, always. Uh, she always wants to show that she's the smartest person in the room and that there's a, an element uh, and I think you see this with Joe Manchin too, uh, of asserting uh, themselves for the sake of asserting themselves. Um, you know, that's all, uh, it, you know, I think because of cinema's uh, uh, gender and, and her sexual identity, uh, I think that there can be something that can uh, sort of throw people for a loop about this because they've not seen quite this package before. But that character that I just described, of an ideologically flexible, incredibly uh, ambitious, uh, ideologically arrogant politician is not exactly a new breed in Washington. Uh, and I do think that one of the things that's puzzling about and Jonathan talked about uh, Biden and Democratic leadership not taking yes for an answer uh, with Manchin. Uh, you know, Cinema, uh, we we report in the book, uh, sat down with Biden and privately told him she didn't want to do more uh, than $1.1 trillion uh, in Build Back Better. And she wanted to do climate uh, and maybe some drug pricing and frankly, not a whole lot else. At the time, that seemed like uh, an insult uh, to much of the Democratic Party. And today, I don't think there's a Democrat in Congress who wouldn't take that deal in a second. Exactly. So just in closing, let me a quick word from both of you, starting with Jonathan. You quote in the end of the, the book here that uh, former Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull said, quote, you know that great line that you hear all the time, this is not mm -hmm. us, this is not America. You know what? It is actually. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to be that pessimistic, but is, uh, surely <laughs> we're, we're not completely an idiocracy, right? It's a, it's a bucket of cold water on the head from somebody who is no America hater. Malcolm Turnbull is a great admirer of this country and spends a lot of time in the States and has since he was a young man. 
I think it's a reflection of reality. It's easy to point the finger at political leaders. And Lord knows in this book, we, we are, we're unsparing in our accountability of the political leadership class in this country uh, and their, their, their failures. But we can't totally absolve the voters. You know, we can't let them off the hook entirely. Democracy depends upon an informed, engaged, thoughtful electorate. And if people are not willing to sort of be committed, active, responsible citizens, um, then you know, they get the government candidly that they deserve. And I, and I think we, we cannot totally let them off the hook on this. Um, it, it's on voters. You know, we, we have midterms this year. We have a presidential election in two years. You know, the, the fate of this country, the fate of our democracy is in their hands. So um, it's it's not just the sort of folks in Washington who bear all the blame. They're oftentimes a mirror. You know, they're reflecting the country at large. And so I think it's important uh, to recognize that. And just in closing, Alexander, are we going the way of the Philippines, bringing back Marcos? Will we bring back Trump? <laughs> you know, I don't. I don't know if we'll bring back Trump. I don't actually think that we'll uh, go the way of the Philippines. I think that we have, we do have a more resilient democracy than it, uh, uh, I think we often give ourselves a credit for. We've been through a lot as a country uh, over the years, including just uh, you know within living memory, uh, we've been through some stuff that is I think even more searing than than what we describe in this book: the assassinations of presidents and uh, civil rights leaders, failed war. Uh, after failed war. And I'm not saying it's a pretty experience or, or uh, you know, sort of shining moment after shining moment uh, for America. Uh, but I do think that one of the things that Jonathan and I do try to do in the book is convey this sense that, you know, the system has been strained really badly and it's not in great shape right now. Uh, but, you know, we're not poised at the brink of collapse, like literal collapse in the way I think it can often feel day to day uh, reading social uh, media or following cable news. Well, I thank both of you for joining us here today, Jonathan Martin and Alexander Burns. Thanks for having us. Thanks. And I've been speaking with Jonathan Martin and Alexander Burns, both national political correspondents for The New York Times and political analysts for CNN, as well as the co-authors of the new book just out, This Will Not Pass, Trump, Biden and the Battle for America's Future. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back speaking how the Supreme Court just streamlined the process for bribing senators and how Summer Lee is exactly what a Democrat should be. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is John Nichols, The Nation magazine's Washington correspondent. His books include People Get Ready, The Fight Against a Jobless Economy and a Citizen-Less Democracy, Horsemen of the trump Apocalypse, A Field Guide to the Most Dangerous People in America, and most recently, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics, and his latest articles at The Nation are The Supreme Court Just Streamlined the Process for Bribing Senators, and Summer Lee is Exactly What a Democrat Should Be. Welcome to Background Briefing, John Nichols. 
It's a great pleasure to be with you, my friend. Well, thanks for joining us, John. And I, we've just finished uh, talking with Jonathan Martin and Alexander Burns of the New York Times, who have this new book, This Will Not Pass, Trump, Biden, and the Battle for America's Future. And you know they've revealed all of these tapes of McCarthy and other Republicans yeah. speaking frankly. And the question I had for them, John, was why is it that these Republicans are patriots in private yet traitors in public? Do you have an explanation? Yeah, it's a it's a very, very good question, because, um, you know, usually it's reverse, right? I mean, it's especially anybody who knows, you know, all the great spy stories, etc. But in this case, it's actually easily explained. And and it, it goes back to the kind of operating premise of the Republican Party for the last 30 or 40 years. And that was that uh, the Republican Party kind of made a, a devil's bargain, if you will, back in the days of Ronald Reagan. And Reagan obviously brought them to, you know, kind of heights of political uh, appeal. They they had the presidency and they had control of the Senate. They made a lot of progress in the House of Representatives, held a lot of governorships around the country. And they wanted to maintain that. The problem was that they didn't have the ability to do it. And they they basically figured out this calculus. They could get a lot of money from Wall Street. They could get a lot of money from the corporate sector if they delivered, you know, tax breaks and other things for the corporate interests. And yet, at the same time, uh, they needed the votes of, you know, social conservatives, the religious right. And so what they basically started doing was lying. They, they said to grassroots Republicans, if you elect us, we'll, you know, do the things you want us to do on abortion and gay rights and all these other issues. But then they said to Wall Street, you know, just give us some money and we're not going to do any of that crazy stuff. And it worked for quite a while with uh, George Bush, the dad, um, you know, even in the Gingrich era. Um, it worked with Bush, the son and Cheney. But then Donald Trump came along in 2016 and he's on stage with all those other Republicans. There were 16 other Republicans running and, and basically people that were thought of as sort of the best and the brightest of the party at that time. You had a Bush running. You had Scott Walker. You had, you know, Bobby Jindal. You had all these people who were pumped up as supposedly really capable politicians. Well, they were ridiculous. They weren't capable or competent. They were they were just hacks who, you know, held the checks for the corporate folks. And Trump pointed that out. He said, you know, hey, Republicans, take a look at these people on this stage. They're lying to you. They will never deliver for you. They'll never do what they said they're going to do. In fact, they're basically in the pocket of Wall Street. And, you know, they're they're bad players. The people believe that they threw out all the other Republicans in the race, picked Trump for president. And that put the fear of everything into uh, hack Republican politicians. What they recognized is that somebody could come along and point to them and say, this guy's lying to you. He never delivers for you. He never does the things he promises. He's just, you know, a bag man for Wall Street and win. And so what they suddenly did was this sort of, you know, complete shift where if Trump said, you know, deny the results of the election, they deny the results of the election. If Trump said, you know, don't be you know, encouraging people to take proper public health uh, actions as regards a pandemic. They said the same thing on issue after issue after issue. They became Trump mini-me's. And, and that's the fundamental reality of the party now. They I can guarantee you that the vast majority of Republican elected officials know that, you know, Donald Trump is a disastrous mess of a human being that the stuff Trump is preaching and, and promoting is incredibly dangerous, uh, 
to the country in general, to democracy in particular. And yet they will keep doing it because they prioritize their jobs, their very cushy career jobs over the country. And one of those 16 running against him, uh, who actually was, I think, the last man standing, was none other than Ted Cruz, who, of course, Mm -hmm. was absolutely furious with Trump uh, for attacking his wife, uh, (laughs) you recall. Oh, yeah. He gallantly came to her defense, yet now he is such a craven, craven uh, Trumpster. Well, look, uh, I I will tell you that Republicans, and I still talk to a lot of Republicans who are, you know, prominent, very in position of power, and and, and really sensible Republicans, maybe hacks, but pretty sensible folks, who said if it was a choice between Cruz and Trump, they'd choose Trump. I mean, there's a general sense that Ted Cruz is the most disreputable and dishonest player in the party. And that's saying something, given some of the the others— but, let, but I brought up Cruz because of your article at The Nation, John. The Supreme Court just streamlined the process for bribing senators. How did the Supreme Court, or why did the Supreme Court, hand this gift to Ted Cruz? Well, it's a, it, Cruz wanted to upset an uh, aspect of campaign finance and ethics law that, um, that he knew was uh, a, a good piece of legislation, a good, good part of, uh, of our kind of overlay of ethics law. And uh, and he wanted to get rid of it for all the reasons you might expect. You know, he wanted to raise a lot of dirty money and and come up with strategies for how to run campaigns with illegal money or what would have been illegal money. And so here's the deal. Back when you were doing uh, the bipartisan campaign finance reform legislation, uh, the better part of 20 years ago with uh, Russ Feingold and John McCain, they put a little section in there that said that. Donors to a campaign cannot pay off loans that a candidate makes to a campaign above the amount of $250,000. Now, $250,000 is a lot of money, right? There's no question. Uh, And they accepted, okay, maybe, you know, a candidate makes a loan and then after the election, they can do a fundraiser and get, you know, raise some money to pay off that loan. But they put a cap on it for a reason, because what they feared was that um, you would have a, you know, a basically very crooked candidate come along and uh, loan his campaign a million dollars or two million dollars. They might even take the loan from a wealthy person. Right. And then once the that individual is elected, then they turn around and go to their very wealthy uh, special interest donors and say, hey, look, I'm in this position of power. I got this loan. I want it paid off. And it's, you know, that's a lot of money. It's a million dollars. They don't want to be indebted. And so it's a way for the special interest to get a really big, you know, kind of hook into elected officials. It's effectively bribery, right? It's it's legalized bribery. And and of course, it was very good to ban that. And, and for all sorts of practical reasons, I could go on about it for hours. There's a whole bunch of reasons. But um, Cruz didn't like this. And so he did classic Cruz. He lent his own campaign in 2018 when he was running against Beto O'Rourke, $260,000, 10000 over the limit. And then he sued. And um, the court should have, you know, they should have bounced him out of court, laughed him you know, out of the room. Instead, they completely accepted his argument. And so now the Supreme Court has set up a situation where Ted Cruz can loan himself money and then have rich Texas oil people pay him back. Um, and but also this can happen all over our politics. 
and and it's just basically opened the door to a whole host of effectively legalized bribery. And I take it that was the Texas Fifth Circuit who uh, <laughs> yeah, set just, it up. just yeah. up held that Texas law, this anti-woke Texas law, that will, if the Supreme Court won't put it on hold, will mean that social media, you know, will be just full of white replacement theories and all kinds of toxic poison and, and what little uh, oversight there is from the big tech companies will be gone. That's, That's exactly the new right. law that the Fifth Circuit just uh, upheld. So yeah, and now this is and this is the thing to understand. Ted Cruz, or you know, Cruz, um, and a lot of the Texas political class, and this includes Governor Abbott as well down there. there they long ago figured out that um, that it is in their interest to kind of restructure everything so that the laws aren't you know even or balanced but that they actually favor their ideological and partisan endeavors. And that's what's happening here. There's simply no question. And, uh, and unfortunately, as they say in the area of writing textbooks and things like that, when Texas does something because it's so big, it ends up influencing and, and in many ways guiding the rest of the country, as we're seeing, frankly, on, on abortion rights and issues such as that. And again, I'm speaking with John Nichols, who is the Nation Magazine's Washington correspondent. His books include People Get Ready, The Fight Against the Jobless Economy and a Citizen-Less Democracy, Horseman of the trump Apocalypse, A Field Guide to the Most Dangerous People in America, and most recently, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics. His latest articles at The Nation are The Supreme Court Just Streamlined the Process for Bribing Senators, and Summerlee is Exactly What a Democrat Should Be. And just to finish up on the Supreme Court, it was a 6-3 to three ruling, uh, and that's the, the new reality of this far-right court that's uh, likely to, they've already signaled they're going to overturn abortion, so uh, mm-hmm. I would be surprised if that Alito opinion doesn't become law Sometime. Or something akin to it. You know, the, yeah. the thing to the thing to understand is this, that um, the Supreme Court now has, yes, there's a potential 6-3 majority, but at the very least, they've got the cushion. They have five justices, a majority, that are absolutely in the tank uh, for right-wing judicial activism. That's just a given. Now, John Roberts may stray away, or maybe even Neil Gorsuch will stray away, because sometimes Gorsuch can surprise you. But it doesn't matter. Because, you know, when you've got five, an almost certain five votes, right, um, it, unless Roberts and Gorsuch both pull away at the same time, which rarely happens, um, they're going to they're gonna tear through this agenda. Uh, and the thing I keep reminding people on, Alito's had two passions on the U.S. Supreme Court. One is overturning Roe v. Wade. He's about to get at it, it looks like. The other one is eliminating labor unions. Not making it hard to organize labor unions. It's effectively, you know, killing them off. And uh, he signaled that. There's simply no question that he is a militant anti-labor justice. And I would really watch for that, in, especially, you know, if uh, Republicans get control of the House, Senate, and the, and the presidency at any point, um, you're going to see the Supreme Court moving hard against organized labor and, frankly, against all sorts of other uh, groups and groupings that we now think of as, you know, just a basic part of American life. So, John Nichols, let's turn to your other article at The Nation, Summerlee is exactly what a Democrat should be. Mm -hmm. 
and she is holding on with a very, very slim ma uh, majority over the APEC uh, candidate that ran against her and tons of money poured into his campaign at the last minute. She was way ahead in the polls until APEC stepped in with, an, with another mm -hmm. front group of theirs. So what's the latest on her? Is she still holding on to that slim lead? Yes, as best I, I know she is. It's going to take a few days. So let's put the, the two things in perspective. First and foremost, um, you're right. Summer Lee uh, was the front runner in the race. There was very little question of that. Her, she's a state legislator out there who's very high profile and very well liked, uh, built a real movement of supporters. Um, her in opponent, Pennsylvania, right. Western Pennsylvania, the Pittsburgh area. And um, her opponent, a guy named Steve Irwin, was, you know, just a longtime Democratic Party hanger on. He was not a prominent elected official. He'd had appointments along the way. And no question, he's probably a competent guy. But, but you know, it, it, there was no likelihood that he was going to get anywhere until um, what we now know is added up to at least 3.3 million. It may get up higher than that when all of everything's toted up to 3.5 or more million dollars spent primarily on a campaign attacking Summer Lee in a very Democratic district as a disloyal Democrat, as somebody who was actually antithetical to the Democratic Party. It was a completely dishonest campaign. It, it suggested that Summer Lee uh, had, was unable to choose or refused to choose between uh, Donald Trump and Joe Biden. That was a lie. Summer T Lee uh, joined Bernie Sanders and the United Electrical Workers Union and others uh, at a major rally right before the election to rally progressive support for Joe Biden. So it was a dishonest campaign, but it was so intense, so much money going into TV ads, mailers, all sorts of communications that it made it a very close race. And so uh, election night was a tense one for Summer Lee and her campaign. But it looks like you know, she's she's got about a 500 vote margin. I think that'll actually increase because it, unless we're misreading it, and I used to be a reporter in Pittsburgh, um, unless we're misreading it, uh, most of the votes that are as yet uncounted uh, come from parts of Pittsburgh that were very supportive of Summer Lee. So my sense is that she's likely to end up with a with a win, but it's been a hard win, and it's a real lesson uh, in the power of this uh, outside money, what it can do. And this uh, group, United Democracy Project, which is a project of uh, APEC, the American-Israel Political Affairs Committee, obviously their main concern is whether or not you're pro-Israel. So what was incredibly dishonest about this was that there was no mention in the campaign of Steve Irwin at all about Israel. It was all about her not being sufficiently a Democrat and being disloyal to Biden. So it was fundamentally dishonest, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, <laughs> at every turn. Um, and, you know, here's the interesting thing. Uh, Summer Lee's stance as regards Israel-Palestine affairs um, is very much, has been very much in the mainstream of uh, where progressive Democrats are. Um, she has been very outspoken saying that, you know, she respects the, the concerns of the Jewish people for uh, a homeland for a place where they are safe, a safe haven, as she says, but she also respects the rights of Palestinians. Uh, and it, that is not a radical position. In fact, Summer Lee has been praised by J Street, which is uh, you know, a group that, that supports the state of Israel, but also supports 
negotiated settlements in the region. Um, Bend the Art Jewish Action, a very progressive group uh, on the ground in Pittsburgh, actually was organizing to do the doors for Summer Lee. So the, the suggestion that she was somehow outside the mainstream was, was absurd. And yet this intensive campaign was run against her. And, and I think, you know, frankly, it, it suggests that there is this kind of deeper desire to have a, a Democratic Party that is, you know, at, at most centrist, you know, not a not a Democratic Party that that pushes any limits on domestic or foreign policy. It's a it's basically a dumbing down of the Democratic Party, which was what the, the pressure was in, in this case. And um, and, you know, you can raise a lot of money for that stance, I'm sure, you know, because there's plenty of status quo folks that don't want to see changes in our politics. But um, but yes. It was not waged on the fundamental issues that that supposedly um, the, the APAC or the United Democracy Project or you know other groupings are concerned about. It was waged on this real kind of like fantasy, this 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 uh, you know, trumping up a lie uh, and then peddling it with so much energy, so aggressively that uh, it made it very very hard. For Summer Lee to push back, because you know here she is as a, a, a young, very quite brilliant political organizer, lawyer, uh, legislator, uh, saying, "Yeah, I want to make the Democratic Party a better party. I want it to be, you know, clearer in its stances in favor of economic and social and racial justice, saving the planet, uh, diplomacy, and and peacemaking on the global stage." Um, you know, and 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 she is somehow told that that's that's damaging to the Democratic Party, that that's a bad, that's an irresponsible stance. Uh, well, it's not. And it is one of the reasons why people like uh, Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders flew into the district in, uh, a few days before the election to campaign with uh, Summer Lee. She also had endorsements from some key unions, from a lot of activist mm. groups. And so she, it looks like she's prevailed. So just in the last minute then, uh, John, this same front group of APAC, is the uh, United Democracy Project, they're going after Jessica Cisneros in Texas, who's running against Queller, who's one of the most corrupt, if not the most corrupt Democrat, and Nita Allum in uh, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. So at least yeah, they're, they're being called out, right? I mean, maybe they are they being called out by Bernie Sanders and others and, and by a lot of progressive groups. Uh, but, you know, when you put these pieces together, what you see is um, that they, they seem to be putting a lot of money you know, ultimately, it looks like it'll be tens of millions of dollars when all is said and done, uh, but certainly in the high millions now, um, into defeating progressive women. And, and in this case, women of color. Um, it's a very it, it's it's a uh, it, it's a very unappealing uh, approach and, and one that that does that should be called out. Like, look, if you want to have a debate about Israel, Palestine, go for it. That's that's legitimate and fine. People can have differences of opinions, but um, don't run these negative campaigns that that basically are rooted in false premises uh, to try and, and and you know warp the politics and, and frankly warp the future of the Democratic Party. Well, John Nichols, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you, my friend. 
And again, I've been speaking with John Nichols, who's the Nation Magazine's Washington correspondent. His books include People Get Ready, The Fight Against a Jobless Economy and a Citizen-Less Democracy, Horseman of the Trump Apocalypse, A Field Guide to the Most Dangerous People in America, and most recently, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics. And his latest articles at The Nation are The Supreme Court Just Streamlined the Process of Four Bribing Senators, and Summer Lee is Exactly What a Democrat Should Be. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone I'm not